Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 27, starting in verse 54 through 56. So if you'd like to open your Bibles and follow along. So when the centurion and those with him who were, with, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. What might have gone through your mind? How would you have reacted? How would you have responded to those events? That's what I want to talk a little bit about this morning. And in these three short verses that we read here this morning, we see four different responses to the death of Christ by the people around the cross. We'll be touching in in Luke as well. But the four responses are saving faith. We see momentary conviction, caring loyalty, absolute loving loyalty, and selfish fear. And what's fascinating is that two of those responses are responses of unbelievers, and two of those responses are responses from believers. And I believe are the same responses today from people when it comes to the cross of Christ. Now, first of all, let's look at the best response, the best response that an unbeliever could ever have, and that is a response of saving faith. We find that illustrated to us by the centurion and a few of the soldiers that were around the cross as they guarded, uh, guarded Jesus there. It's mentioned in verse 54. Now the centurion here, he's not just another one of those Roman soldiers. He was a commanding officer. In fact, he commanded over, uh, he had a command over a hundred other Roman soldiers, thus the name centurion, uh, century coming from, uh, or getting our concept of the hundred. So he's got authority. He's got stature, he's got experience, he's got power, he's got respect. Now there were a number of different centurions. He was one of them, um, but I think he was especially chosen for a unique responsibility here because he and those under his commands were guarding Jesus. And this was no doubt probably the biggest most significant and most unusual case that had ever come before Pilate. And we talked about that whole process. And so Pilate himself may have handpicked his best centurion, his most trusted centurion, who in turn then handpicked the soldiers from his group of a hundred that were under his charge. And his responsibility probably began early that morning in the Garden of Gethsemane. He may have very well been there in the present, in, uh, in person there at the Garden as they arrested Jesus and he heard all the things that were going on through that whole process. Very much aware of the issues surrounding Jesus. It's very likely he heard all the yelling by the Jewish crowds and all the accusation by the Jewish leaders. He was probably back in the private Um, private judgment hall of Pilate when Pilate was questioning Jesus himself. He probably oversaw his men pressing that crown of thorns on his brow and as they hitting him on the head with the reeds reeds and slapping him and spitting on him and punching him and mocking him. 
Then throwing a scarlet robe on him to further mock him. These then were the very men who then nailed Jesus to the cross. They were the men who gambled for his garments in an amazing display of indifference. The centurion had heard all the accusations. He had seen all the beatings. He had been there when Pilate was questioning him. And yet this Jesus said nothing. Something wasn't adding up. In his pathetic, beaten state, there was something regal still about Jesus. The centurion couldn't quite put his finger on it. The Jews were saying he was guilty, he was guilty, he was guilty. Pilate said he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. But there at the cross, something begins to happen that I think began to change the way they were thinking. In verse 54, it says, When the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, the instant darkness when the sun failed for three hours in the middle of the day, Jesus crying out in a loud voice, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the immediate earthquake that shook the earth and split the ground and broke open the, 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 the tombs. When they were right in the center of all this phenomena that was going on all around them, the scripture says they were terrified. The Greek word is phobeo, which, which we get our word phobia from. You know, a person who is truly has a true phobia of something, they're, they're, they're actually in terror of, of uh, whatever the situation might be. Fear of heights, fear of flying. I've heard of people being a, 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 uh, having the phobia of balloons. There's just all kinds of stuff that, that it's out there. And it could be anything. It's terrifying. And in fact, the Greek adds the adjective great to the word phobeo, which emphasizes how terrified the centurion and the soldiers were. It's the same word used in Matthew 14, 27 to describe when the disciples, they were in the boat, remember the waves were going, the storm was going, and they, they saw this figure walking across the ocean, and they were terrified because they thought it was a ghost. It's the same word used to speak of the sheer terror the disciples felt on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 17, where Jesus pulls back his human flesh, as it were, and, and the glory of God is made visible to them. And they fall on their faces on the ground and are in a state of absolute terror, absolute panic. It's a strong word, and that's what those soldiers were feeling at that moment. And the context here and the circumstances here implies that this was not simply a human fear. It's not just afraid of an earthquake or afraid of the darkness. There's something more than, than just the physical, something more than just the human fear. And all of a sudden, they come to the conclusion that this is not just another criminal. This is not just another rebel, a deluded, deranged man, a fake, or an imposter. The phenomena is overwhelming to them. And the centurion has heard the words of Jesus on the cross, profound words which has penetrated his heart. He sees all of this amazing, miraculous phenomena taking place, and he knows that something has gone desperately Wrong. The whole universe has gone insane in response to what took place. And the fear indicates a sense of sin in the presence of a holy God. 
It's that reverential fear that comes to one who knows that they may be under the judgment of God. It reminds me so much of what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me, I cried, I am ruined. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And though they were unbelievers, they were pagans, they were not Jewish at all, they were struck to the heart. And through their terror, I believe, they recognized their sin. And in doing what they did to this man, the sense of guilt, what have we done? And then it leads them to the next step, and it says, they exclaim, surely he was the Son of God. The fear, I believe, indicates a recognition of sin, and then that confession, I believe, indicates salvation. If their fear was only a human fear of darkness and earthquakes, they would have cried out and cried for help, and they would have run. But it wasn't only a human fear, it was a spiritual awe of God. And I say that because in Mark's account in chapter 15, it says that it was right after the centurion heard Jesus say, It is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then the centurion said, Truly, this was God's Son. So it wasn't only the phenomena that was going on, but it was those final words of Jesus that just drove the truth into his heart. And he uses the word truly to, to make it very, very clear that he has no doubt in his mind. He isn't saying, uh, well, maybe that was the Son of God. I don't know. No, he spoke with conviction, truly, this was the Son of God. But I don't think it was just all the phenomena and extraordinary things that were going on that caused him to make that confession, or even Jesus' final words, although they had to have a great impact on him. Do you know what or why he really knew that this was God's son? The only way anybody can ever know that is by the Holy Spirit revealed by God. Remember Matthew chapter 16? Peter said, to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What was Jesus' response? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter knew Jesus to be the Son of the living God because the Holy Spirit had told him that. That is sovereignly, a sovereignly revealed truth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except how? Except by the Holy Spirit. What put, took place with that centurion, probably with the soldiers there with him, is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 11, which we know so well, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... Raising for the dead hadn't happened yet, but the principle is still here. You will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. So I believe the centurion declared with his mouth two things. 
Luke 23 tells us that he declares, surely this was a righteous man. There was understanding. And here in Matthew, the centurion declares, surely he was the Son of God. He was declaring with his mouth, Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. Then he also, I believe, believed in his heart because Luke 23, 47 tells us that he also, what? Glorified God. That's a heart thing. There was a heart change, for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And I believe he and most likely the three or four soldiers with him were saved at the foot of the cross. But you know the biggest reason why I believe they were saved? I've given a lot of good reasons. I think it's when Jesus prayed and said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Do you think that was just a wishful prayer on the part of Jesus? Do you think Jesus was praying outside the will of his Father? That would kind of be impossible, wouldn't it? Do you think God the Father didn't hear or decided not to answer his beloved Son's request? No, the Father answered that prayer and forgave that centurion and those soldiers. What an amazing display of God's amazing grace, God's amazing love, God's amazing mercy. Jesus, in grace and love and mercy, forgave and redeemed the very men that nailed the Son to the cross. You know, in our day and culture, that's kind of a hard thing to understand or grasp because we have become we become a culture of the offended, have we not? People take offense at the drop of a hat. The offense isn't usually given, it's usually taken. Where's the grace? Where's the mercy? Where's the love? I think it's a rare commodity these days. You know, if anyone had reason to be offended, Jesus sure did. Because the offenses were actually purposeful against him. And he chose not to pick it up and take it, but rather in love and grace and mercy to overlook it and to forgive. Should that not be our example to follow? In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What's that? Love, grace, mercy, humility. That's what we see at the cross. An absolutely astounding reality that Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit all come together to demonstrate grace in a way that is absolutely beyond our understanding to redeem the very crucifiers of the Son of God. Sometimes it's easy for us to feel hopeless. You know, we just keep blowing it, don't we? <laughs> One time after another. And we wonder, is God finally going to give up on us? I'm hopeless. We're not. You're not. Do you feel you've done too many bad things in your life? You haven't. Jesus is interceding for you and for me just as he did for those soldiers on that horrible day. That's the power of the, cost, of the cross. That's saving faith. There's a second response. And to see this one, actually, we're going to be looking at uh, briefly at the Gospel of Luke. In uh, 
That's our second one called momentary conviction. Momentary conviction. In Luke 23, looking at the very same scene, reporting the very same attitude of the centurion in verse 47, he follows it in verse 48 and refers to the crowd that was standing there around the cross. And Luke 23, 48 says, When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place. So all the mocking crowd uh, had, had seen heard, experienced everything the soldiers had seen, heard, and experienced. The darkness, the earthquake, the rock splitting, the graves opening, the veil being torn and ripped in half. They, they knew something was wrong. They knew something supernatural was going on. And how, how do we know that? Because Luke tells us they beat their breasts. That was an automatic re reaction of combined terror, remorse, and guilt. Something, they realized something supernatural taking place here. They began to pound on their chest uncontrollably. Oh, woe is us. You can hear them crying. They were overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and responsibility and, and fear. And I believe at that moment they had a, a moment of clarity. Where they understood how wrong they were. The guilt was overwhelming. And perhaps they had a fleeting moment of real realization that this may well have been the Son of God. That, that, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The very Messiah. And it terrified them because God was angry. And they were afraid for themselves. They were afraid of what God was going to do to them. That still happens today, doesn't it? When someone may have a fleeting moment of conviction. After all, the cross can be overwhelmingly penetrating even to an unbelieving heart. But what's so shocking about verse 48 are the last three words. Whereas the soldiers repented, believed, rejoiced. Luke saw this, uh, says this about the crowd. When all of the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Those three words should break our hearts. Those three words have got to be some of the saddest words in all of Scripture. They went home, there was no salvation. There was conviction, but they went home, turned on the football game, got ready for lunch, maybe went out with some friends, and the conviction passed. A momentary conviction. They felt sad, they felt sorry, they even felt guilty, and they feared for themselves. They knew God was speaking, but they weathered it. And it passed. I mean, three o'clock came around, the sun came out. No more earthquake. Oh, all is well. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. There's a wonderful element in that. But worldly sorrow brings death. And that's the difference between the soldiers and the crowd that was there at the cross. The soldiers were forgiven because they had that godly sorrow that brought repentance and then led to salvation. But the crowd walked away because they only had a worldly sorrow. It was all about themselves. And that brings eternal death. 
So these first two responses that we've looked at here this morning were from unbelievers. The centurion and his men were transformed, and I believe became believers. A crowd, though they felt convicted momentarily, they turned away. So coming back to Matthew 27 here, there's a third group with a third response, and that's a response of caring loyalty, absolute loving loyalty for Jesus. And this is depicted by the women, the women that were there at the cross. Verse 55, many women were there, watching from a distance. So you can kind of picture the scene. You've got got the cross where Jesus is hanging, and then there's a space immediately around the cross where the soldiers are standing to, to guard and keep keeping the crowd back from getting any closer. And then you've got the crowd there milling around uh, as well, taunting and jeering and continuing their mocking. And then back on the fringe, but still part of the scene, would be a number of women. And later on, according to John's Gospel, they did approach the cross, and that's when Jesus speaks to them, particularly Mary and John. says, Mary, here's John, John, here's Mary. For them to care for one another. But here here are these women. Loving. Sympathetic. Even though their hopes are dashed. And their dreams are dead and filled with grief. Because Jesus is dying. They're watching their master die. But their loyalties are so strong. That they aren't afraid of the Jews. They aren't afraid of the Romans. Nothing can overpower their love and their sympathy to Jesus. They're not going to run. They're not going to flee. They're strong. They're courageous. They're they're, they're caring. And the only disciple that was there with them was John. And we'll, we'll talk about the disciples in a moment. G. Campbell Morgan, writing about this woman, says this. Hopeless, disappointed, bereaved, and heartbroken. But the love he had erected in those hearts for himself could not be quenched even by his dying, could not be overcome even though they were disappointed, could not be extinguished even though the light of hope had gone out. And over the sea of their sorrow, there was no sighing wind that told of the dawn. It's a beautiful way of saying that they they really had no hope. No sighing wind that told of the dawn, no tomorrow for them, and yet they were there. Says many women. We don't know how many, but there were many. Why were they there? Because there were a number of women that had been a very important part of Jesus' ministry throughout his ministry. And most of the times, as you go through the Gospels, you read about the disciples, and that's Jesus' core group, right? He's teaching them, he's working with them. But periodically, we get a glimpse of the women as well. For example, listen to what Luke says in chapter 8, starting in verse 3. He says, After this, Jesus traveled about from town to town and village, one village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, the twelve disciples, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Isn't that interesting? Susanna and many others. These women, Luke says, were helping to support them out of their own means. Do you ever wonder how Jesus and disciples could just walk around and do their thing for three years without working? I mean, the disciples had all left their fishing boats. It was these women. 
It was these women who had been touched and transformed by Jesus. And here in our passage in Matthew, it says in verse uh, 55, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee. Why? To care for his needs. They gave out of their possessions, provisions, resources, finances, hospitality. They attended to the needs of the disciples and Jesus as they went about in their Galilean uh, ministry. And among those amazing women you, uh, who have cared for and who have loved Jesus so much, according to verse 56, are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now Mary Magdalene, now Mag Magdalene is not her last name. Uh, that's just indicating where she came from. She was from the town of Magdala, a small town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, just south of Capernaum. And the last time we heard about her was in that passage that we just read from Luke chapter 8, um, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Remember, she was one of many from, who, from whom Jesus had cast out evil spirits. In fact, seven of them had been cast out of her. And he had delivered her, redeemed her, totally changed her life. In fact, she had been so touched and transformed that she gave the next number of years of her life serving Jesus. What an example for us when Jesus touches our life. The second woman that's mentioned is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Now, who in the world is that? We don't know much about this Mary. Remember, the, the gospel was written many years after all the events took place. It was written in the beginning of the early church. So both Matthew and Mark both named James and Joseph as the sons of this particular Mary. And I think there's a couple of reasons for doing that. One is, from what I understand, about a quarter of the women at that time were all called Mary. Mary, 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 Mary. In fact, at the cross, we, we know there's at least three Marys. There at the cross. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and we'll find out Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also there. So naming the sons was a very... Uh, was a way of differentiating which Mary was there at the cross. Now, the other interesting thing that is, if, if Matthew named James and Joseph at the time of the early church, both James and Joseph must have been believers, probably pretty prominent or very well-known believers in the early church, men that the other believers would have known and respected. And it was like saying, Mary was there, you know, Mary... James and, James and Joseph's uh, mother, she was the one that was there. Other than that, we really don't know a lot about these, uh, these two brothers or this particular Mary. And then we have the third woman who is mentioned here, Matthew, and she's the mother of the Zebedee boys. The Zebedee boys, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples. The Gospel of John tells us that her name was Salome. She was the one, if you remember back in Matthew 20, who had the audacity to ask Jesus that if her two boys could be on his right side and left side when he goes into heaven. And Jesus was very strong in his response back to her. But what's interesting is that she was so touched, she became a devoted follower of Jesus for the rest of those years and traveled with him and cared for him and all the disciples. 
And these three ladies must have been pretty special because we're going to find out later that it was those three who later went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. And they were the ones that discovered, ah, Jesus is in here. First ones to see that. What an honor for being fearless and caring. Well, where'd they come from? Well, Matthew tells us uh, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee, Galilee to care for his needs. This last week of his ministry, they had followed all the way from Galilee. That's a long haul. It's about 80 miles. At least four days of walking and then uh, about a week around Jerusalem going in and out and to all the places that Jesus was going, finally ending at the cross. All the while providing meals, hospitality, perhaps giving financial help, providing in any way they could, caring for his needs. And at the cross... They weren't going to give up and run. They weren't about to give up and run. Their loyalty, their caring, their faith, their love would not waver. No fear. You know, Paul writing to Timothy tells him straight up in, in chapter 1, verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Folks, if we are living in fear, no matter what it may be, we need to ask ourselves, where is the power? Where is the love? Where is the sound mind? Because according to God's word, that's how we should be living. Not in fear. Caring, loving, absolute loyalty. These men, women showed their faith in action, and their faith and trust in Jesus superseded their fears or their concern for themselves. In that volatile setting, their, their lives could very well have been in danger. Being associated with Jesus could have brought great, uh, grave consequences to them and their families. You remember Peter. He was scared to death to even admit that he was a disciple. He, he, in fact, he, he uh, denied Jesus three times. Caring loyalty. There was faith and there was action. We don't get to believe and hide. James 1, and 25 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do, do what it says. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Then he goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 17, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. We can say that we believe, but if we, and, and that we have faith and, we, and that we trust God, but if we are stepping out of our comfort zone, or excuse me, if we're not stepping out of our comfort zone and actually trusting Him to guard us and protect us and to give us words to speak, James is questioning our faith. And I thought about that verse that we read a moment ago from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And it's interesting to me, as I looked, looked at this, that Paul switched the order around from one verse to the other. I never thought about that before. Mouth and heart, heart and mouth. You see, it's not either or, it's both ends. Confession and faith. Faith and confession. There are people who declare with their mouth, I believe, a head decision, 
but it's never become a heart decision that has actually transformed their life. That I also believe that there are those who genuinely come to faith in Christ, who actually believe in their heart, but for some reason there seems to be a disconnect somewhere because with their, with their uh, mouth they don't profess their faith. And I don't believe Paul is just saying that we need to say it out loud in church. That, that's not what he's talking about here. But we need to profess our faith both verbally and by our actions. We can't hide in our church. We can't hide in our homes. We can't hide in our Christian circles where, where we feel safe. We need to put our faith into action. We need to be out ministering to a lost world. No matter what the consequences, trusting Jesus because we love Him. We talked about that in our spiritual growth class earlier this morning. No matter what those consequences may be. Caring, loving, absolute loyalty to Jesus. And then there's one more response by believers to the death of Christ. There on the cross that we don't see here in these verses. And that is selfish fear. Selfish fear. I, I say we don't see them in the verses because I ran out of verses in this passage. But that's kind of the point. The silence is deafening in all four Gospels. So who illustrates a selfish fear at the cross? The disciples. The disciples, but pastor, it doesn't say anything about them, right? That's what's so amazing. Where were they? Except for John, none of the rest of them were there. You know where they were, right? Back in Matthew 26, 56, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read, then all the disciples did what? Deserted him and fled. They deserted him and fled. They should have been courageous, but they were cowards. You remember in Luke 22, 31, Jesus said to them, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned back, not if you turn back. Did they lose their salvation? When they're being sifted, when they, they fled and hid? No, because the Lord holds us in his strong right hand. But they fell into Satan's trap of fear. They were in a spiritual struggle and they succumbed to that fear. They were being sifted by Satan and therefore, at that moment, they became useless to Jesus. They violated the basic principle of discipleship from Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. And what was an indicator of a willingness to die for Jesus? It's whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. If you're going to be my disciples, Jesus says, you need to be willing to give up your life. Well, at that moment, the disciples weren't willing. They were in hiding. I don't believe we hear from them again until after the resurrection. When Mary, after having seen the risen Lord, went to them, she knew where they were hiding. And told them, come and see. And then they stepped out and came. But when they thought they might lose their life, they were gone. 
And Satan was shaking and sifting them violently just as Jesus had predicted. And Jesus had said, I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What an amazing promise that is. That's a promise that we need to memorize and and hide in our hearts because we have all stepped back in fear at times and have not served the Lord in the midst of that fear, whatever it may be. But we ought to learn from it and understand that God God is holding us in his righteous right hand, no matter what that fear factor is. And and the, the disciples learn all of that. Boy, did they learn. And most of them eventually paid for it as martyrs with their lives. Even Peter, you know, that cowardly, denying, horrible Peter. (laughs) Just shortly after the ascension of Christ back to heaven, Peter and the others were out boldly proclaiming and calling out the Jewish leaders for what they had done. They were told to stop preaching under the threat of jail. And what was their response? We must Obey God rather than human beings. No fear. God's great command has not been lifted, folks. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, and surely I will be with you. Do we trust him? Do we trust him? The Holy Spirit has, in turn, given us talents and giftings to serve Him boldly. Do we trust Him? There are four responses here at the cross. If, you're, if you've never made a commitment to, to Christ to follow Him, what, what is Jesus saying to you this morning? There are two responses to, to conviction and the reality of who Christ is. A centurion's response, truly, you are the Son of God. And He praised Him. Paul says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a promise. And then there's a response of the crowd, convicted in in fear, but thinking, this too shall pass. I'll weather this as well. I'm turning away to get busy with life and ignoring the call. But then there are also two responses of the believer, the believer who is following Christ. Are we like the women Showing caring, devoted, loving, absolute loyalty, standing for Jesus Christ, whatever the cost, no matter what's going on around us. Or are we like disciples in selfish fear, hiding out, as it were? There are believers who hide in plain sight. I think we've all been there at one time or another. Fitting into society and culture so well, nobody knows that we're followers of Christ. Or we just hide out in fear, not using the giftings the Holy Spirit has given us to minister in the way that he has called us to. We're comfortable here. Where do we find ourselves in the midst of these four responses? And the question is, do we trust him? Father, this morning, we thank you for the cross. You gave up so much for us. What is our response to you? I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. 
And if there may be one even listening, whether this morning or during the week, that your Holy Spirit is touching and speaking to, I pray that there would just not be this momentary conviction and, and, and trust that this, this feeling is going to pass. But Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them to yourself. Because they too are loved by you. They too were, were given that same forgiveness if we come to Christ. And Father, for us, I pray that you'd help us to be so transformed in our life, so trusting of you, so full of, of who you are and what you are doing for us and how you watch over us and guarding us in your righteous right hand and, and moving before us that we will be bold in all of our actions for you. We pray that you just did a new work in each one of us this morning. For we ask this in Jesus' name.